Again, glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts 13. So last week we saw, we said uh, Paul and Barnabas, they were sent out, and they were the first, we call them intentional missionaries. So they were the first missionaries set apart by a church to go. And that was rooted in Acts 13.3 where the Holy Spirit says to the church in Antioch during a prayer meeting, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the, excuse me, for the work that I have for them. There have been missionaries before, but we call them accidental missionaries. There was persecution for the church in Jerusalem, and that caused the church to go underground and scatter. And the disciples that scattered absolutely shared as they went. But Paul and Barnabas were the first ones who were intentional, we said. And they went to uh, Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home country, and they worked through that island. Uh, Today we're going to see them hopping on a boat, going to Turkey, to a town called Pisidian Antioch. There were 16 cities called Antioch. So that was their version of Peachtree Street back then. You had all of these different Antiochs. So they left from a town called Antioch, and now they're in a different town called Antioch. Uh, And that's where we'll pick up today. So we're going to start in chapter 13, verse 13. From, From Paphos... Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak up. So I'm going to pause right there. Remember, the main guys in the traveling group are Paul and Barnabas, and then they brought along Barnabas' younger cousin, Uh, either called Mark, called John, or called John Mark. That's his name, the guy who wrote the Gospel Mark. He's coming along, and you see he goes home, which Luke doesn't make a big deal out of, but it actually winds up being a pretty significant issue in the future. In chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas do like a reunion tour, and they go back to all of these places that they're uh, visiting here this first go-around. And Barnabas wants to take Mark, and Paul says no, and it's a significant enough disagreement that they actually split. Over it. So these guys who are good friends, these guys who have been co-workers for years, split over whatever just happened. Some people say Mark got malaria and went home. Some people say he was jealous because his cousin Barnabas has now been eclipsed by Paul in terms of leadership. Maybe something nobody knows is the bottom line, but it was a significant enough deal for Paul that he's going, I'm not sure I want him on my team when we go back around again. So they, uh, John leaves, they've so just got Paul and Barnabas. They always start in the synagogue, makes sense. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. So they're going to these towns that are spread out all over Asia Minor, and they all have synagogues. There's about 25,000 Jews in this Pisidian Antioch city at this point. Uh, The synagogue would be the center of Jewish life, not just religious life, but education, culture, social. All of those things would circle around the synagogue. And so there's kind of a ready-made audience there And just, just to be clear, we've talked about the temple. There's one temple, and it's in Jerusalem. And there's synagogues in every city where there's Jews. I think it was ten Jewish men were necessary to form a synagogue. That's how many you need. There were these certain prayers that they prayed that you had to have ten men in order to pray those prayers corporately. So they said that was the minimum for a synagogue to form. So that's all it took. So a city could have multiple synagogues. There's only one temple in the entire world, and that's in, or at this point, that was in 
Jerusalem. So don't hear those things as synonymous. In synagogues, there's no priests, there's no sacrificing, there's no animals, there's no altar. There's reading from the Law and the Prophets, so that's the Old Testament. There's prayer, and there's a message. So it's much more like what we, we would consider going to church than showing up at the temple with a goat and having it slaughtered and all of those things that happened only at the temple. Good? Okay. So Paul and Barnabas are at the synagogue, and Paul begins his message. It was customary if you had a visiting um, rabbi to let them speak. And Paul, remember, was trained as a Pharisee by one of the best uh, rabbis in the area. And so he, he would have maybe had a bit of a reputation. They would be happy to have someone like him in the audience. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So we've got two groups of people in the synagogue. We've got Jews and we've got Gentiles who worship God, but who have not converted to Judaism. So they don't follow the dietary laws. They probably haven't been circumcised. But they recognize Israel's God is the true God. So you've got two groups. The Gentiles, we've said before, they can't come into the temple, but they're more than welcome in the synagogue services. So you've got Jews and Gentiles. And now Paul is going to list some things that God has done throughout Israel's history. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. That's one. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Two. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. Three, for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. That's four. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. That's five. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. That's six. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. That's seven. After removing Saul, he made David their king. That's eight. God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So imagine you're Paul. Um, You're trained as a Pharisee. You know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. You're in a town that you've never been in before. Nobody, you don't know, you don't have personal relationships. Maybe people know you by reputation. Maybe not. But you go to a synagogue because those are your people. You're both reading the Old Testament. And so what Paul does is he begins to establish common ground. Here's some things that we both agree on, and he lists these eight things out of the Old Testament. You can go back and look those up if you want to. Those are the places in the Old Testament that mention these eight things that Paul lists. You could call them, you can call them eight acts of mercy, eight acts of faithfulness, eight promises fulfilled, whatever, whatever label you want to put, put on them. What Paul is saying is, here's some stuff we all agree on, right? Y'all don't know me, and I don't know you, but here's some things that we, that we all agree on when it comes to God. Here's some things he's done in the past for our ancestors. All of those things are recorded in the Old Testament. We all are on board with the Old Testament. So he's establishing relationship. He's building some level of rapport with these strangers who he doesn't know and who don't know him. That's a big deal. We talk, we're going to talk a little bit about what it is to be witnesses. That's the first step, establishing some level of, of connection and foundation with people, again, particularly people who you don't know. So then Paul builds on this foundation. From this man, that's David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as God promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. 
fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have Jesus executed. When they carried out all that was written about Jesus, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, you're my son, today I become your father. God raised Jesus from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it's also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So I'll pause there. It can get confusing when Paul uses Old Testament verses because he uses them kind of in some interesting ways. He's quoting three different prophecies that are in the Old Testament that were spoken to David. And what Paul is saying is, is these things were spoken to David for one of his descendants. We know David died, and, and we know he rotted. We can go find his bones. We know where the tomb is, and we can go get the bones out. So this was not spoken for him. It was spoken to him for one of his descendants, the Messiah. And Paul goes on to say it's Jesus. He's the one who's been raised from the dead. We'll circle back to that, but I don't want you to get bogged down in those three quotations. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone had told you. So Paul's established common foundation. We all agree that God is faithful. We all agree God's been merciful. We all believe God's been kind to us. And here's eight examples of that that we all know. God did all of these things amongst our our ancestors. These are stories that have been passed down through all of our families, generation after generation after generation after generation. And then what Paul does is he goes the next step and he builds on that common foundation. We all agree these things are true about God. And now I'm going to tell you something new. This same God who we all know, the same God, we're all on the same page with who he is, he's done something new in our day. He's fulfilled one of his prophecies, and it's for us. It's to us. He made the promise to our ancestors, and he's fulfilled it in our day. He sent the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, and his name is Jesus. And Paul does something brilliant. He takes what could be the most, uh, the strongest objection to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, and he turns it on his head. So remember, these guys, they live hundreds and hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. It would take them weeks to travel to Jerusalem. The most devout would have showed up three times a year for these three major Jewish festivals. Many of them probably went once a year. There were probably a large number who never went because it was just too difficult to get from where they were to Jerusalem. So chances are they've never heard Jesus preach They've never seen him work a miracle, and they probably don't even know anybody who's heard Jesus preach or seen him work a miracle. So if they know anything about Jesus over the last 10 or 12 years, what they probably know is, well, there was a guy named Jesus. He, he caused a ruckus 
in Jerusalem, and all of our leaders decided he wasn't the Messiah, and they had him killed for blasphemy. That's probably what they know. He was rejected by our leaders. He was rejected by the Pharisees. He was rejected by the Sadducees. He was rejected by the Sanhedrin. He was, he's, he's not anybody for us to concern ourselves with. That's all they know. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away, weeks and weeks away, and they probably don't know anybody that has any firsthand connection to Jesus. So what they may be thinking is, Paul, you're talking about a guy who all of our leadership has rejected. And you're telling us he's the son of God. And what Paul does, and again, it's brilliant. He uses that and says, that's actually proof that he is the Messiah. The fact that he was rejected was, was foretold in the scriptures. Psalm 118 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or has become the cornerstone. The fact that the builders, the leaders of our faith, rejected him actually proves that he is the Messiah. Isaiah 53 is a whole chapter that says the Messiah is going to be rejected. So don't allow the fact that our leadership rejected him to cause you to think he's not who he says he is. That actually, um, that's a point in his favor. And then to add to that, he was raised from the dead. That's the big one. He was resurrected from the dead. And I can, we can prove from the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be raised from the dead. He's someone who's not going to see decay. Even David, a man after God's own heart, died and rotted. There's something different about Jesus. That didn't happen to him. And I know you don't know me. And I know you don't know anyone who knows Jesus. But I know some guys who do. There's over 500 eyewitnesses. And I can give you their names. They're still alive. It's only been 10 or 12 years. I can connect you if you want me to. I think that's what Paul's saying. There are, there are people walking around who, t- who talk to Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who rubbed shoulders with Jesus during the 40 days after his resurrection before his ascension. So you've got from Scripture and from eyewitness testimony, it's these two witnesses that confirm Jesus is the Messiah. And so he, he tells all that. And then he says, and here are the implications. That because Jesus is the Messiah, here's what that means for you. It means your sins can be forgiven. By believing in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. You can be justified. You can be declared righteous before God. But you've got to make a decision. I don't know this, but I wonder for a Jew if that's, if that's an interesting idea. To think they're going to have to make a decision. If you're a Jew, you're born into the family of God. You're born one of the chosen people. So the idea that you're going to have to respond to God is probably a novel concept. And so Paul says, don't be like those scoffers that, uh, that we see, read about in the Old Testament. You've got to make a decision one way or the other on what you think about Jesus. This is the offer on the table. He's here. He's the Messiah. I just showed you that. And, all, and if you believe in him, your sins can be forgiven. But you've got to make a choice around him and around his identity. Last, we'll look at the, impl- the, the results of his sermon, kind of the aftermath. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So everything seems to be going well. We want you to come back next Saturday, and we see some Jews here like, we love this. This is a great message. We don't know, maybe they haven't bought in fully, but they're at least intrigued enough to say, we want to know more. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. 
For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So now we see the the results. Initially, everything looks good. Everybody's on board. Now this city, uh, even though it's got a large Jewish population, maybe up to 25,000, it was a Gentile city. And so when, when, when Luke says the whole city turned out, it's going to be mostly a Gentile crowd. And the response of the Jews is they're jealous. Are they jealous because Paul and Barnabas were able to draw a bigger crowd than them? I don't know. It reminds me of that parable Jesus told in Matthew 20, the parable of the vineyard workers. You remember that one? Jesus says the, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a guy who owns a vineyard, and he goes out at 6 in the morning to find some guys to work. And he goes down, and he, he finds some guys, and he tells them to come back, and he says, I'm going to pay you $100, and I want you to work all day. And the guy says, all right, we're in. We're going to do that. Then he goes back at 9, and he says, find some more guys. I keep pointing over here. When I was growing up, there's a crystal where Starbucks is, and that's where guys would hang out. So you would go to the crystal to pick up guys to work. So he goes to crystals. There's no other reason to go to crystals, by the way. So he would go to crystals, and he would say, Let's, I need some guys to work and at 9, and they would come back. And then he'd go up to crystals at noon, and he'd find some more guys, and then he'd bring them back to work. And then he would go up there again at 5, and he found some more guys to work, and he brought them back. And so he's got all these guys working, and they've all been working different hours. And at 6 o'clock, it's quitting time, and he calls the guys he brought in at 5. And he says, hey, I want y'all, and he pays them $100. Hey, y'all did a great job. Here's your $100. Then the guys who he picked up at noon come to him, and he gives them $100. You guys did a great job today. And so the guys who've been working all day are thinking, well, if he's giving them $100, what's he going to do for us? They say in the scripture, it says they, they bore the heat of the day. They worked a lot longer than these folks. So the guys who, who've been working since nine, they've worked nine hours, they come up and he gives them $100. And then the guys who he hired first, the guys who've been working for 12 hours, he gives them $100 and they're ticked. Like, this isn't fair. In the response of the landowner, he says, are you envious because I'm generous? That's what he says. Are you envious because I'm generous? I'm, I'm holding up my end of the deal. This is the deal that we made. I think that's probably what's happening with the Jews. Those Jews are going, I've never eaten barbecue or bacon my whole life. I've never had fried shrimp. I've, I've taken off one day out of every seven. You know how much money I've lost? I've had to try to keep the 613 laws of the Old Testament for my whole life. My parents did it. My grandparents did it. My great-grandparents did it. You know how difficult it was. I've never been able to wear polyester or whatever, all of the laws. And they're saying we had to follow those. And now you're saying to all of these Gentiles that they can be incorporated into the family of God without having to do any of that. We are envious because you're being generous. We don't, this grace of God thing, it's not good. We like it for us. We love that Jesus as a Jewish man has come to redeem our people. We don't love that now you're saying that all of these Gentiles get direct access to God without becoming Jews first. They're envious. Of the generosity and the grace of God. That's what I think is going on. They don't like that Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Everything was good as long as Gentiles had to become Jews 
in order to get to God. But once Paul says that's not the case anymore, once he says everyone who believes can have every sin forgiven, he doesn't say anything about becoming a Jew. He says everyone who believes. That's the only condition for inclusion into the family of God. Once he says that, the Jews are going, time out. Not fair. We are envious of God's generosity. They can't keep Gentiles from saying yes to the gospel, but they can absolutely make it miserable for Paul and Barnabas to be in the city. And that's what they do. They hike up the pressure. They get some of the leading people in the city to make life miserable for Paul and Barnabas. And so they leave. First, they go to the Gentiles. They say to the Jews, if you guys are walking away, very interesting what he says. If y'all don't consider yourselves worthy of salvation... All right, then we'll go on to somebody else. Interesting way of phrasing that. And they move on to the Gentiles. The Gentiles respond. They continue to hike up the pressure on, or ratchet up the pressure on Paul and Barnabas. So as they're leaving, they shake the dust off their feet, which is a symbolic way of saying, your, your blood is on your own hands. It's not on us. We did our part. Y'all rejected. They move on to the next city, Iconium, which we'll look at next week. And it says they're filled with joy uh, out of their obedience and their response of people to the gospel. So I was thinking about that, and you kind of you see three pieces. Acts 1-8, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We said last week, whether you see yourself as Paul and Barnabas, you're sent. You're, I'm an intentional missionary. I know where God is calling me to work. Or you're more like, I'm an accidental missionary. And I, I don't know why I am where I am, but I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God that he's put me here. Either way, you have a part to play in what God's doing in our city and in our world. We all do. We're all to be witnesses. And I was looking at the three parts. So you've got initially you have establishing relationship. Then you have building on that common ground. And underneath it all, you have this heart that says, I'm not going to be envious of the generosity or the grace of God towards others. And some of you may be excellent at all three of those. I think most of us struggle with, with at least one. And I want you to think about that. So for me, it's the first one. I am terrible at establishing relationship. Any of you who've tried to talk to me, you're probably like, yes, you are. Not good at small talk, not good at chit-chat. No one has ever come up to me and said, you are so warm and inviting. I just, I just want to put my head on your shoulder. Nobody ever says that to me. I wear headphones often, and I listen to music rarely. The headphones are... A defense like my armor. It's a shield. I can't hear you. So I, I do that. I'm not good at establishing relationship. And so the past couple of weeks, so it's been two and a half weeks, I started praying this. This is going to make you sad for me that I have to pray this prayer. You can pity me. I'm okay. I'll take it. So I've been praying this prayer. God, I'm, you know I'm not going to talk to the guys in the line behind me at Kroger. I'm not going to do that. It's not me. If an angel appears in my room and audibly says, hey, I need you to start talking to strangers, I will rep- I'll reply, well, I'll, I'll think about that. We'll, we'll see. I'm not going to, it's not me. But, God, if you bring people my way, I will take the headphones out of my ears. I will look up, I won't walk fast, I won't pretend I don't speak English. All of the things that I do to keep me from having to engage, I will talk to them. So I've been doing it for about two and a half weeks. I don't pray it every day because, honestly, some days I'm tired. But I have been pretty consistently, and I'm making some progress. I've talked to some people over the last two and a half weeks, and I'm not talking to them trying to see how quickly I can get out of the conversation. I'm trying to learn. This is what it's like to establish relationships with people. You may 
be in that same boat. If you're an introvert like me or antisocial or whatever I happen to be, you may say, I need to pray that same prayer. Some of you are awesome at this. You collect people all day long. You go to the U-scan line, and by the time you're done, everybody's your best friend. Like, it's fine. You talk to the people in the airplane seats next to you. You do all of those things. Your issue is not establishing relationships. But when it comes to building, taking that next step, you're like, I'm out. I don't know what to say. I don't, they may ask me a question, and I can't answer it. I don't really know the Bible that well. If I'm honest, it's hard to admit. I really don't even know the gospel that well. I don't even know what to say about Jesus. I know what he's done in my life, but is that good enough? I don't know how to move the conversation in a spiritual direction. I don't know how to read the signs of when it's okay to talk about spiritual things. So you've got tons and tons of common ground built with tons and tons of people, but there's no, there's nothing eternal or spiritual in any of those relationships. And that may be where you need to pray. You need to know God wants you to be a witness. That's what you're called to be, not a defense attorney. You don't have to defend him. You don't have to be able to answer every objection. Just saying this is who he's been to me. And so for some of you, that might be the prayer. God, I need some courage. Or I need some, I need eyes to see. I, I can't, I don't know how to get from here to there. I don't know what to say. I fumble over the words. I get super nervous. I'm afraid I'm going to tick them off or burn the relationship. Or honestly, God, I'm afraid I'm going to say something that's not true and it's going to make you look bad. Whatever those things are. God, I need help. Knowing how to build knowing how to take this common ground that we have and inserting, injecting a little spirituality into the conversation. For some of us, if you're justice-oriented, this may be the part for you, this idea of God freely giving grace to people, you think that's great in theory, but there are certain people who need to sweat a little bit. They need to reap what they've sown. They've lived for X number of years wreaking havoc, and the idea of them just having to say, okay, suddenly I trust in Jesus, and all of that gets wiped away, that, honestly, I don't enjoy. That ticks me off. I've been doing this for a long time, and it's not fair to me that they're going to come in at the end of the day and receive the same benefits and rewards that I'm going to receive. That's a hard thing to say about yourself. But if you're justice-oriented, that could be the case, and maybe not in general, but with a few people. And so your prayer may need to be around compassion. It may need to be around, God, help me recognize the grace that you've given to me so that I'm I'm not stingy when you want to extend that grace to other people. Recognizing that no no one deserves it. That's why it's called grace. And so I need your help there. So I want to take a minute. We're going to, we're going to pray three different times over the course of this um, little talk. I have three radically different points to make, and I think it can be confusing. So we're going to stop and pray. And I want you in your mind to think which one of those three at it. But for you, um, it's the one that you struggle with the most. And I just want to pray. And in your heart, I would like you to pray along with me, if you will. So we'll move through each group. So the first thing, God, I pray that you would convict us, each man and woman in the room, where, where are you asking us to grow? We want to be your witnesses. We want to get better. So if you have one, so we'll start with the first group. So I'll personalize this. God, I pray for people like me who 
struggle connecting, establishing relationships, who struggle with the initial conversations, making, establishing common ground. God, would you give us grace to see people, to not, be, not walk so fast that we don't notice people who are looking for a conversation. God, would you give us grace to build some space into our schedule to have a conversation with somebody? God, would you, in the midst of talking, God, could we hear what people are saying with their mouth and also what they're saying with their heart? God, I pray that you would give us grace to genuinely listen, not just trying to get through to, you know, hit them with the Jesus hammer, but to truly listen to where people are, to value people as humans who are created in your image and have dignity just because of that. God, would you help us overcome, whether it's shyness or timidity or fear or busyness or grace in those areas. Second group, this is you. You can pray this in your heart, something similar. God, I pray for those who wrestle with the idea of bringing anything spiritual into a conversation. It seems so awkward and difficult. There never seems to be a good opportunity or an open door. God, would you give them eyes to see the green lights in their relationship? Sometimes the light's red and they'd respect that. But it's green more often than we think. God, would you give them ears to hear the longings in the heart of the people who they're connecting with? As people are talking about their day or their dreams or whatever, I pray, God, for those who struggle in this area, God, that they would hear eternity crying out in the hearts of these men and women. And they would have the boldness and the courage and the grace to say Jesus is the answer. I don't know all the answers, but I know Jesus is. God, would you give them grace to communicate who you are to them, how you've worked in their life. To not be afraid of a question they can't answer or a Bible verse that they don't know. But to stand confidently on the one whom they do know. And to share without condemnation, without pressure, just genuinely excited to share good news with people that they love. Maybe in that last group, you've been working all day and you honestly resent the guys who get hired at 5 o'clock. God, I pray for those that they would recognize they've been hired at 5 o'clock. None of us have been working since 6 a.m. Deserve what you've given to us. And God, would you give us hearts that are tender towards people, people who we see as late to the party, People who we see as undeserving and honestly, we kind of want them to suffer a little bit. Would you tenderize our hearts towards them? Would you give us compassion? Think about what you said about the crowd. You said they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You didn't say they're evil and wicked. You said that about Pharisees. You didn't say that about anybody else. God, would you give us that heart of compassion who looks at people and recognizes harassed and helpless? in need of a shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. It was good. So I was also thinking about this idea, this huge verse. Through Jesus, 
everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. The, the scope of that statement, through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. So there are no, the only condition, the only qualification is belief. Everyone who believes. There's not a racial qualification. There's not a social qualification. There's not an intellectual qualification. There's not a behavioral qualification. There's not a religious qualification. The only qualification is belief in Jesus. Everyone who believes. Every sin will be forgiven. Every sin. There's no asterisks there. There's, not, there's no footnotes. Every sin will be forgiven. For many of us who've been raised in the church, you, heard, you know this from Bible school. And so it, it's easy to gloss over and lose the impact. This is the good news. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have every sin forgiven. That's the gospel in a handful of words. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to keep dietary laws. You don't have to know about the 613 laws in the Old Testament. You don't have to help little old ladies cross the street. You don't have to recycle. You don't do any of those things. All you have to do is believe. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to come to church. You believe, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. That is the only qualification. And then every sin is forgiven. A justification, and that's a massive word that we don't have time to unpack. If, you're, if you are kind of theologically minded, you can read Romans 1 through 8. And Paul unpacks that word that he just says there. This justification, he, uh, he explains it in Romans 1 through 8. It's dense for sure, but you can dig into that. Justification is a legal word that means to be declared acceptable or to be declared righteous. Justified, justification, righteous, those words are almost synonymous in the New Testament. They always, you always see them used uh, next to one another in conjunction with each other. The idea of being justified and being declared righteous. And so that's what it is. This is like you go to court and the judge says you're not guilty and you can walk out of here a free man or a woman. That's justification, both sides of that coin. The removal of guilt and the, uh, the, the giving of privileges and rights of someone who's not guilty. It's both of those things. And what Paul says here is that justification, that being declared righteous, is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. It wasn't available through the law of Moses. Again, we don't have time to, to go through it, but here's some scripture from Romans that kind of walks you through that a little bit. Ideally, we would be declared righteous by keeping the law. God gave us the law. The law is holy and righteous and good. The issue is none of us could keep it. If we could, then we would be declared righteous based on our behavior. God would say you're good. That's really what being justified means. It's God saying you're good. You're okay. That would happen because we keep the law well. But the issue is none of us keep the law well, and no one has ever kept the law well. Paul says no one seeks God, not even one. No one is righteous. No one is justified. Nobody is. We can't do it. Even if I could live perfectly every day of my life moving forward, that doesn't do anything for all the times I've blown it up until today. It doesn't fix any of that. The, the, the law can't handle that. None of us are declared righteous. None of us are justified because of our behavior. So what God has done is he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life. So he did fulfill the law and to die the death that we deserve, to pay the penalty that we deserve. 
for not keeping the law well. And what God says, if you stay connected to Jesus, then you get the benefit of both of those. You get the benefit of his life and you get the benefit of his death. You get the benefit of his death in that he paid the penalty that you should have paid. So I'm going to declare you not guilty. And you get the benefit of his life as the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. And so I'm going to declare you righteous. And all of the benefits that come with being righteous will accrue to you as well. All of that is available to you as you believe, trust, follow Jesus. That's it. That's the gospel. That because of Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death, anyone who believes in him can be declared righteous, can be justified, can be declared good in God's sight. You're good. Your sin's been taken care of because Jesus paid the penalty. You're good here. And you're righteous. You're good here. I'm going to treat you as a son or a daughter. I'm adopting you fully into the family. You don't have to sit on the back of the bus or at the kids' table. Like, come on in. Everything that's available to Jesus is available to you because you're trusting in him. For many of us, we get that when it comes to our relationship with God. We get the vertical. We don't want God judging us based on our behavior. We don't want him judging us based on our track record because we know that's not going well for us. But there's also this sense of wanting to justify the way we live our life. And that's what I've been thinking about this week. A lot of the things that you uh, see swirling in our society, it's people who are living a certain way and they're saying, somebody tell me I'm okay. Somebody tell me this lifestyle is okay. Somebody tell me this behavioral choice is okay. There's uh, a concept in psychology, they call it cognitive dissonance. You can't live contrary to your beliefs for long. It creates internal stress. It's not just that we can't hold contradictory beliefs in our heart. We can't do that either. That creates cognitive dissonance. But also we can't behave in a way that's contrary to our deeply held beliefs. In the Bible, it's Proverbs 4. Guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. What's in you comes out of you. You can't for long. We're made for integrity. We're made for our beliefs and our behavior to line up. And when they don't, it creates stress for us. If any of you have ever gone through a period of of long-term rebellion towards the Lord, after you've said yes to him, then you've entered into some time where you've lived in kind of open sin. You know what I'm talking about. It creates all of that stress in here. Because your behavior is not matching up with your beliefs. Or you may know someone who has done that. I see that with guys and girls who, are, who have cheated on their spouses. It creates all kinds of internal havoc for them. They're not sleeping. They're not eating. They're taking medicine. They're doing something to try to reconcile their behavior and their beliefs. And so what they, most of them, unfortunately, wind up doing is they alter their beliefs. Because they're not willing to alter their behavior. And that's what we see out there. A whole bunch of folks who don't want to alter their behavior, and so they're looking for someone. Can the government tell me what I'm doing is okay? Can the Supreme Court tell me what I'm doing is okay? Can my parents, can a teacher, can, is there a group of friends, is there someone who will stamp me and say you're justified in choosing to live that way? Romans 8.33 says only God justifies. And if we're looking for anything else or anyone else to justify, it's sand and it's going to crumble. I thought of two things you may think of others. Two major things that we look to to justify our behavior, if not to justify us before the Lord, to justify the decisions that we make day in and day out, the lifestyle choices. Some of us look to our pain to justify our behavior. We kind of look to the past. It makes us Eeyore up there. We wallow. 
And so we say, I've been victimized in some way. I've been sinned against. I've been hurt. I've been wronged. The people I talk to who struggle with this often have been victimized and hurt and been wronged. They've been sinned against, some of them egregiously. It's terrible. But that still, even in the midst of that, what God says is, if you've been sinned against, what do you do? You forgive the people who've sinned against you. And you take that pain, and you don't use it to justify living wretchedly. You give it to the Lord and say, what can you do with this? How can you redeem this? How can you bring something good out of this? That's what you do. But some people are prone to saying, you know what? Because this has happened to me, that gives me an excuse. It justifies me living angrily or bitterly or resentfully or irresponsibly. It justifies me wallowing in self-pity because of all the things that have happened. If you tend to say, if you have a list of grievances that you can put on the table at any given point, if you can go point by point and say, here are all the bad things that have happened to me, here are all the ways that I've been victimized, you may be an Eeyore, and you need to be really careful. Don't allow your pain to justify, this is a hard word, living sinfully, because that's what you're doing. That's not, God is not saying those things are okay. He's not saying it's okay for you to live bitter. He's not saying it's okay for you to live alienated. He's not saying it's okay for you to live isolated. He's not saying it's okay for you to live in self-pity. He's not saying any of those things. So the pain that you've experienced absolutely is real, but it does not justify living a disobedient life over time. That can be a hard word. It's one some of us need to hear. Then there's another ditch, and it's on the other side, where the ends justify the means. And the ends for us are usually things that we think are good and worthy and right and may actually be. Where we live, a lot of times it's family and Achievement. Sometimes it's other ends. And so in the name of getting my family where I think they should go, it justifies me being controlling, or it justifies me being manipulative, or it justifies me being a busybody, or it justifies uh, me getting people down who may get in the way of what I want for my family. Because the goal is good. The end is good. It's the best for my family. And so whatever I've got to do to get there... It's okay. Some of us, we think about it, there's a title, there's a position, there's a salary, there's influence, there's something that we're going for, and going for that, because that's a good and right thing, it justifies being hyper busy. It justifies never resting. It justifies cutting corners. It justifies kind of business is business mentality where we check our ethics at the door. We're allowing the end to justify the means. And we're saying, because what I'm going for is a good and worthy goal, then it really doesn't matter how I get there. God doesn't think that's okay. It's a sinful way of living. You're allowing a goal or an end to justify a sinful lifestyle. Not helpful at all. You're, you're building on sand. In both cases, whether you're Eeyore or this kind of uber-driven person, you're building on sand. What's going to happen You're going to be, at some point in your life, you're Eeyore. You're going to wake up, and you've got nobody. You've burned every single bridge in your life. You're done. You are isolated at that point. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Nobody is reaching out to you at that point because you've bit every hand a thousand times. You've got nothing. You're uber-driven. Your kids get the scholarship, or they're in Harvard or whatever, and they don't even want to talk to you anymore because you've, molded and manipulated and controlled and pushed for so long. It's building on sand. 
We've said before, so many of the decisions that we make Monday through Friday are not in this book. It does not tell you who to marry. It does not tell you whether to take the job. It doesn't tell you where to live. So many of the daily decisions we make are not found in the Bible. And that's why it's so important for us to have a sense of, God, you've got to justify my decisions. I need to know from you if I'm okay. I need to know from you if I'm spending my time, if I'm spending my money in ways that glorify and aren't. Like, am I okay? Is my lifestyle okay? I need you to tell me that on all of these decisions that are not necessarily in black and white in this book. And so for us, it's important to know which way do you fall. I fall much more towards the end justifies the means than Eeyore. That's just that's the way I'm wired. I'm, I'm, I, I rarely, I don't have any feelings, so I don't get hurt. You may, and so that may be the way that you fall. It doesn't make you a bad person. You just need to recognize, hey, I'm tempted to do that. I'm tempted to allow my pain to justify living a sinful life. And I, and I do that. I say, you don't understand what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know the things that I've experienced. Those are all excuses. Those are justifications. It's not the Lord. People like me, we're wired to say, this is really important. And so if I've got to step on a few people to get there, and I can do it even with spiritual things. We want to see a community transformed. So if I've got a trail of broken bodies behind me, it's okay because we're trying to see the kingdom come. It's not okay. You can't do Jesus' work in a non-Jesus way. And so I've got to recognize, am I allowing the ends, even godly ends, to justify an ungodly approach? So I want to take a minute and I want us to pray about that. I'm going to make you choose which one do you tend to fall towards. You Eeyore or you Uber? Which one of those two? If you're Eeyore, I just want you to confess. God, I confess that I'm prone to wallowing in self-pity. I confess that I, I allow the difficulties, the slights, the egregious sins, the abuse, the hurt, whatever those things are. I allow those things to justify me living a disobedient lifestyle at times. I I, I confess I allow that to cause me to live in fear, to cause me to live anxiously, to cause me to live angrily or resentfully or bitterly, to cause me to release responsibility instead of taking ownership for my life. And I need you, Holy Spirit, to convict me when I fall into that ditch. I recognize you, God, are the justifier. And so I want to look to you to determine if the life I'm living is okay. If you're like me, God, I confess that I let the ends justify the means. And maybe you can say what that end is. Is it your family? Is it accomplishments? Is it something spiritual? What is it? Something with your health? God, I confess that I'm prone to doing that. And in the pursuit of what I see as a good and worthy and righteous goal. I'll step on people. I'll run people over. I never rest. I get hyper competitive. I lie. I cheat. I control. I manipulate. I increase pressure to get my way. Whatever it is. God, I confess that. And I repent and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict me when I begin to move in that direction. I want to trust you as the one that holds everything together. 
And I want to look to you and you alone to justify the choices that I make. In the Amen. We're going to close with this. One thing you see, Paul makes a point to say God is a promise-keeping God. That's what he does. He kept all these promises in the Old Testament. So I was thinking about this, and we're going to close with this, Bo. You can come back. Here's just eight promises that I found in the New Testament, and there's tons and tons more. But what I want you to do uh, as we close, Bo Bo and Chad are going to sing, and you don't need to sing along. Uh, We'll have ministry teams here up in the front if you want one of them to pray with you. I think that would be a great idea. But what I want everybody to do is I want you to grab onto a promise and say, God, I need this to be true in my life. I want you to hold on to it, and I want you to hold God to his word. That sounds irreverent, but it's not. You can see it in the Bible. You see it with, with Abraham. You see it with Moses. You can see it some with Hannah. You can see these people who basically they didn't let God go until they got what they wanted. And what we're saying is, God, these are things that you said you would provide. These are things that you said you would do. I need you to come through. We've got to release how it happens, God. However you want it to happen, it's okay. But I need it to happen. And so as you think through your life, and it might not be, yours might not be up on the screen. You may know that there may be another promise that you're thinking of that you're holding God to. And I want you to, I want you to do that. I want you to trust in your adoption as a son and your adoption as a daughter enough to, to really to fight for the things that God has said, these things are what I'm going to do in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah? No? Yes? So, Bo and Chad are going to sing. If you want prayer, you can come up here. A couple of us will be up here. If you want to kneel, you can come up and kneel on this front row, or you can uh, pray in your chair, however you want to do that. Uh, But I do want you to spend the next couple of minutes really asking God to be true to his word in your life. And then Bo will dismiss us after this song.